Good morning, everyone. It is Luke, the 19th chapter, where my Bible is opened up. And I'll invite you to be opening up a Bible to Luke, chapter 19 as well. Whether you're using a digital Bible or an old-fashioned paper Bible or a really old-fashioned scroll or whatever it is that you're using, it really doesn't matter as long as we're all looking together in the Word of God for these next few minutes. That's what this part of our worship is all about. It is great to see everybody this morning, and it is great to see those who are visiting with us. We're really appreciative that you've come our way and worshiping with us here on this first day of the week. It's great to see some other bright colors, and I'm not the only brightly dressed person in our midst today, uh, but it's just good to be a part of this good number as we worship God on the first day of the week. I hope that as we've already had an edifying period of worship thus far in singing and in prayer, hope that that will continue now for these next few minutes as we reverence God through the study of His Word. Our preaching theme here at Lakeside for 2018 is all about spending time with Jesus. And what better way could we learn from the Lord and grow closer to the Lord and be like the Lord than by simply spending some time in His company through the pages of inspiration, through the biblical record of His life here upon this earth. And we've been doing that once a month, uh, every month. And and I know we did this just last week, but it's April now. And so we're going to do April's installment right here at the beginning of the month because this week we'll be reading in Luke chapter 19 in our Bible reading schedule. And I want to get a head start on that this morning by reading in Luke chapter 19. Start with me, if you will, in verse number 1. In Luke 19, verse 1, the Bible says that Jesus entered Jericho. and He was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector, a chief tax collector. He was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not. Because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And so he hurried, and he came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, that would be the leaders, the religious leaders, when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Jesus said to him, Today, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. Verse 10 now. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save The lost. Think about verse 10. Jesus loves those little one-liners, doesn't He? With just one simple sentence, Jesus is able to amaze us and challenge us and focus our attention on what He deems to be of greatest importance. In fact, some of those little zingers that Jesus just snaps off, even non-Christians know them. Like, for example... Judge not that you be not judged. People who don't even come to church, they know that one. Or what about some of those one-liners that have kind of passed on into common usage? What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Or do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Or let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Jesus has a lot of those little short, famous one-liner statements like that, doesn't he? Yet as famous and as powerful as all of those that I just mentioned are, 
I would submit to you that none of those are nearly as meaningful and as important as Luke 19 verse 10. Because in one short and concise sentence, Jesus is able to summarize His entire mission, His entire objective, His entire agenda for His work here on this earth. Jesus' statement there in verse 10, it is frank, it is candid, and it is to the point, and it embodies the very essence of the gospel. And Jesus spoke those words to a short guy who was an agent of the IRS. Now, unfortunately, this story, the story of Jesus at Zacchaeus' house, it is one that I'm afraid we've kind of just convinced ourselves, well, that's a kid's story. I mean, after all, we teach that in our children's Bible classes. We begin teaching that story at a very young age. I go over that with the kids on Sunday night in the Bible drill from time to time. We even have that little song. You know the song I'm talking about, about the wee little man? I remember when we used to sing that song as a, as a kid, I used to think that that meant that Zacchaeus was Irish. He was a wee little man. That's what I was thinking about that. But we sing those songs and we teach those lessons and we just kind of convince ourselves that the story of Zacchaeus is this little G-rated tale for toddlers. And yet I'm going to submit to you this morning that I think this account in Luke chapter 19, I think it ought to be rated M for mature audiences. And not because the content of this story is racy or salacious in any way, but because the issue that is at the front and center of this story, it is so vitally important. Jesus talks here about salvation. He talks here about who it is that He is going to save. In fact, did you know that chronologically, this is Jesus' last personal encounter before He arrives in Jerusalem and the events that lead to His crucifixion. Thought about in those terms, then this becomes a very serious and sobering story, doesn't it? And that's why this morning, I want us to consider this account in Luke chapter 19. And I want us to think about what it is that led to Jesus making that great statement in verse 10, that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Because when we do that, I think we're going to get a very clear picture of who it is that Jesus is looking for. Jesus said that He came to do some seeking, right? Well, who exactly is He seeking after? And who is it that Jesus wants so badly to save? Let me share with you then three ideas right out of Luke chapter 19 about who it is that the Lord is looking to bring salvation to. And that needs to begin, I think, by talking a little bit about effort and about people who put forth an effort. Look again at verse 3. Verse 3 says that Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. This is during the springtime. And Jesus is on His way. He's starting to make that last fateful journey toward Jerusalem. And by now, Jesus is very much a celebrity. He is widely known. He is very famous at this point. And as Jesus makes His way through Jericho, there are, there are just throngs of people who come out to see Him, who want to be near Him, maybe even want to touch Him. 
There is an atmosphere here of fervor and excitement in the air. Jesus, Jesus is here. And while I guess that's pretty good for all of those folks in Jericho who were really interested in Jesus, it wasn't so good for Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was... Vertically challenged. I think that's the politically correct way of saying it. And so he has some difficulty with seeing Jesus. Surely he had heard about all of the great wonders of this rabbi from Galilee. All the things that he had done. And so he wanted to see Jesus with his very own eyes. Wanted to see Jesus for himself. And so what does he do? He makes an effort to see Jesus. Actually, I'll ratchet that up. I think Zacchaeus makes maximum effort to see Jesus. He runs ahead of the crowd. He climbs a tree. Think about that. I'm afraid sometimes we tell this story and sometimes we put clip art up on the screen and we don't really think about this in like real life terms. Think about how strange that would have been to see an agent of the IRS climbing a tree. Can you imagine a guy wearing like a really nice suit climbing up in a tree while there's crowds standing around? What the the world would that be like? Well, here's Zacchaeus. He's a rich man, probably has on this fine custom-tailored robe, and he's perched up in a tree. That would be such an odd thing to see. And you know what? Jesus does see that. And because of Zacchaeus' extra effort, that brings into his life the blessing of being with Jesus. And what I'm saying to you this morning is that that quality, that is something that the Lord has always honored. The Lord has always been pleased with people who are willing to try. People who are willing to do something. People who are willing to get off of dead center. I think in the Old Testament, I think about King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Even though David is not the one who ends up building the temple, God reserves that right for his son Solomon... David wants to build the temple. He has the idea to build this temple for God. He's trying. He's trying to do something for the Lord. And God looked at that and God was impressed with that. He was impressed with David's heart. Or I think of the New Testament. I think about a guy like Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. There's a guy who, he doesn't know everything about everything. He doesn't have a perfect understanding of God's will for his life and what it takes to be a Christian yet. But he's a good man. He's a guy who's praying regularly. He's giving alms to the poor regularly. He's making an effort. What's God do for him? God sends him an apostle. And now here in Luke chapter 19, what do we see? Luke shows us a fellow who wants to see Jesus, who wants to see Him so much that he's willing to look like a weirdo and climb up in a tree. And that intent... That desire, that sincerity on Zacchaeus' part, that impresses the Lord. You know, I'm afraid sometimes we start throwing out the word sincerity. I'm afraid sometimes we're a little bit nervous to admit that God does know the intent of people's hearts. And that God will bless those who sincerely want to do what's right. And we're afraid to just say that. We're afraid to praise the idea of sincerity because we're afraid that that's going to give people the impression that, well, you don't even really need to be obedient to God's commands. You know, just as long as you kind of, sort of meant well about it, well, it'll all be okay. The Lord will save you anyway. And that, of course, is manifestly not so. 
Jesus knew that if Zacchaeus, even with all of his good intentions, if Zacchaeus did not obey, if he did not come down out of that tree and bring Jesus to his house, then Zacchaeus would not have been blessed. But there can be no doubt about it. That the great things that happened in Zacchaeus' story, it all began, it began with a heart that was in the right place. It began with a sincere desire to do what's right. And Jesus knew that. Jesus saw that. Jesus appreciated that. And He worked with that to bring about great blessing in Zacchaeus' life. Which means this morning, I need to be asking, where is my heart? Where is my desire? What am I trying and making an effort to do for the Lord? Do you see here that a sincere heart, that is the starting point. That is the genesis. That is the beginning of everything. For everything that the Lord wants to do in your life. Would you hold your place in Luke chapter 19? Let me add James chapter 4 here to this discussion. In James chapter 4, here is a description, I think, of what we want. And that is that we want to be close to God. Isn't that what we want? Well, how do we do that? How do we get close to God? James chapter 4, look in verse 8. James 4, verse 8, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. How do we do that, James? Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You see, we begin in the heart. It begins with a desire deep within to know God. A desire that then moves us and motivates us to try, to do, to start, to make an effort. And so let me ask you this morning. First of all, let me ask my brothers and my sisters in Christ. Brother or sister, are you trying to serve God? Is that in your heart that you are making a maximum effort in your service to the Lord? I ask that, and I think that's a fair question to ask, because sometimes Christians are just cold and indifferent and dead. And they seem to just be kind of flat in their Christian walk. And sometimes if you talk with them about that, and you say, hey, hey, brother, hey, sister, you know... It seems like you're kind of going through one of those valleys. It don't seem like you have a whole lot of zeal and fervor to serve the Lord. You ask them about that, their response will be that they, it seems like they're just kind of, kind of just sitting around, kind of waiting. They're kind of waiting for the UPS guy to just deliver this box right to their front door and it's going to be labeled spiritual blessings. God's going to just bless them in an abundant way because they sat around and just waited for something to happen. These are the people who they don't intend to move. They don't intend to make an effort. They're not searching out things on their own. They're not doing anything. They aren't anything. They're just sitting around. Get in a tree! Climb up! Do something! Do something like Zacchaeus did. Something that shows God, Lord, I want it. I want you. I want your word. I want to be close to you. I want to know you better. I want to serve you in greater ways. Can I just say to you very kindly, but really as firmly as I can, that if you somehow imagine that showing up occasionally on a Sunday morning, if you think that somehow in some way that that is echoing and mirroring what Zacchaeus did in his life here, you know, hey... I made an effort. Look at me. I came to church twice last month. If that's your definition of making an effort, then you are fooling yourself. 
While assembling for worship, that is critically important. We need to do that. And I certainly would never want to diminish the importance of what we do when we gather together as the people of God. I would tell you that showing up here, that's just the jumping off point. That's just the starting point for everything else that we do in our lives. In some ways, that's really just the bare minimum that we can do. Which is why Zacchaeus' example shows us that we need to do more, much more for the Lord. There needs to be dedication to the Lord. There needs to be an intention to have an interest in His Word. To change how we live, not just on Sundays, but Monday through Saturday as well. Brother or sister in Christ, do you want the Lord in that way? Are you trying? Jesus is looking. He's looking for those, for those who try. And let me just ask as well, for those of you in attendance this morning who are not Christians, Maybe it's just as important for me to ask, where is your heart? Is your heart set on serving the Lord? Your presence here today would seem to indicate that that probably is the case. And if that is the case, then why don't you make an effort to start serving the Lord? Why don't you step out in faith and do something about what it is that you do believe? When are you going to stop making all kinds of excuses for your inactivity and why you have not obeyed the gospel? You think about Zacchaeus. He had every reason in the world to make all kinds of excuses as to why he can't go see Jesus. I'm too short. The crowds are too big. People there don't like me. But Zacchaeus is different. He desires to see Jesus. So he gets up and he does something about it. You know, there's a lot of people on that day who came out to see Jesus. But only one guy out of all those people, one guy made the extra effort to get up in a tree and the Lord blessed effort. Jesus blesses trying. You and I, I am convinced you and I, and I include myself in here, we need a big heavy dose of that in our lives. Because that's the kind of people Jesus is looking for. Look again in Luke chapter 19. Who else is Jesus looking for? Well, there in verse 7, after Jesus invites himself to come to Zacchaeus' house, we're told that the bystanders, all those people that were watching and observing, that they grumbled. And what did they say? They said, oh, he's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. A sinner? Well, why would they say that about this guy? Why would they know and have any idea that Zacchaeus was a sinner? Well, verse 2 gives us some indication as to why they would think that. Verse 2, Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector and he was rich. What that shows us is that Jesus is looking and he is looking many times for the people that we would not expect. Jesus is looking for people whose sins are great. Now Luke, of course, if you were reading in his gospel, Luke has already shown us some people who are rich. Not necessarily anything wrong with being rich per se. But Luke goes out of his way to show us that oftentimes riches are a hindrance whenever people encounter Jesus and what Jesus demands. For example, just in the previous chapter in Luke chapter 18, Jesus meets this fellow that we know as the rich young ruler. And that's just a debacle with that guy. 
That guy has no interest in giving up really any of his riches or anything in order to fully follow Jesus. In fact, earlier in Luke, in Luke chapter 12, I believe, Jesus tells the parable there of the rich fool. And things don't turn out well for that guy. Over and over again in the Bible, rich people, they turn away from Jesus. They refuse to pursue genuine discipleship. What in the world makes us think then that Zacchaeus is going to be any different from the rest of them? After all, why is Jesus spending time with a guy like this? Jesus, don't you know who this is? This is a tax collector and a chief tax collector at that. I wonder sometimes if we really understand and appreciate just how despised tax collectors were in Jesus' day and time. You know, we don't think much of the IRS ourselves today. In fact, I read a survey recently. This was in Harper's Magazine. And the survey said that a full, actually more than 50%, more than 50% of Americans said that they would rather be mugged by a street criminal then be audited by the IRS. Wow! Don't you wish you worked for the IRS? People would rather be mugged in a dark alley than talk to you. But that's pretty emblematic of how we feel about tax collectors in our day and time, and yet, yet that was really nothing compared to how Jews felt about tax collectors in the time of the first century. In the Roman Empire, taxes were collected in really the most unscrupulous manner possible. It was done through a system of tax farming. Here's how that worked. The very wealthiest people, and sometimes these were very wealthy Jews, the wealthiest people were invited to bid on the amount of taxes that could be extracted from a particular province or a particular region. Imagine somebody maybe bidding on the tax burden for the state of Kentucky. I don't know how much that actually would be, but here's some rich fellow who says, I'm going to place the bid on it. And let's imagine that he wins that bid. Well, what happens is, is that wealthy person then pays the government up front whatever the winning bid was. Caesar, Uncle Sam, he's going to get his money first. And in exchange for that money, the Roman government then gives that man the authority, the license to legally extract those taxes out of the people with a reasonable profit. For his time and his energy and his services, he gets to add on a reasonable profit. The problem was, the government never defined reasonable profit. As a result, that wealthy tax farmer could legally, by law, he could extort and squeeze as much money out of the people as he possibly could. And so tax farmers, they would then employ tax collectors. And those were the guys who were out every single day, practically on every corner, collecting taxes on virtually anything and everything. In fact, what's collected on taxes today may be completely different than what was collected on taxes yesterday. Imagine you crossed the bridge yesterday to go into town and everything was fine. But then you show up today to cross the bridge into town and, sorry, there's a tax for crossing the bridge. And imagine maybe you are a merchant, and so you get into town, and you're there to set up shop. Oh, hold on. There's a tax today in order to set up your booth, in order to sell your merchandise. And of course, there's going to be tax on the income that you get from that as well. Oh, and hey, did you bring did you bring an animal when you pulled your wagon into city limits? Oh, sorry. There's a tax for that, for bringing animals within city limits today. And of course, that kind of thing just went on 
all of the time. Tax collectors were often referred to as licensed robbers. And the Jews, as you can guess, they hated them for that. Because not only were these tax collectors cooperating with Big Brother, cooperating with the enemy, with the Roman government, but they were also making themselves rich at the expense, many times, of their fellow Jews. In fact, tax collectors were so hated, I found this just this past week, that there actually exists in some of the rabbinical literature of that time, rabbis actually would write about how it is okay to hate a tax collector. God, God's fine with that. You can okay it. You can hate a tax collector because they're just so rotten and so evil. And not only can you hate him, but actually, that hatred could be extended even to his family. Think about that for a second. You know, I'm not real fond of the IRS, but I've never written a bulletin article about why it's okay to hate the children of the agents of the IRS. There is even in rabbinic literature that says that since a tax collector is basically a crook and a thief, that it would not be wrong to cheat him. The Jews had such utter contempt for tax collectors that they were not even allowed to make offerings in the temple when the collection plate was passed or the offering box was set up. If a tax collector put his money into that offering box at the temple or at the synagogue, we don't want it. That's dirty money. Keep your money to yourself. We hate tax collectors. Now, put all of that together, and there's so much more we could say about that. Does that give you some idea of where Zacchaeus was in Luke 19? Does that give you some image of how people must have thought of that man? By his involvement in that corrupt taxation system, he was very rich, but he was also very hated. It is no wonder then that verse 7 tells us that everybody grumbled when they saw Jesus go into Zacchaeus' house. Jesus, don't you know who that man is? Don't you know what he is like? Don't you know what his values are? Don't you know what he does to us on a daily basis? That man is a sinner. In fact, in the eyes of most Jews, that man was the worst kind of sinner. What in the world would Jesus, what could Jesus possibly say To a man whose sins are so great. I imagine Jesus would tell him that God's grace is greater. Because Jesus came for people like Zacchaeus. He came for people, verse 10, who are lost. That's who He came seeking after. And while that certainly would include good church-going folks, who get all dressed up and nice and come out to services on a Sunday morning, who think that their sins in comparison to others are relatively minor. That does include us. But you know what? That also includes all of those people that our society deems as being incorrigible and reprehensible and abominable and not worthy. Jesus brings salvation to them as well. In fact, sometimes I wonder if our attitude is is that, well, we don't want salvation brought to them. Well, Jesus came to bring salvation to them. Jesus wants all of us. And so let me just just stop right here. Let me just make sure that we're all getting it. What Zacchaeus' story is teaching us is that you can't be too sinful for Jesus. You understand that? 
Zacchaeus' story is showing us that Jesus wants you. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, Josh, Jesus, Jesus doesn't want me. He doesn't, you, you don't know the things I've done in my life. You don't know how I have messed up my life so bad. I have made bad decision after bad decision. I have wrecked my, my family. I've wrecked my, my job. I've wrecked everything around me. My sins are so numerous and so great and so far spread that I am beyond the grace of God. If you're thinking that this morning, then you need to think again. Because Luke 19 shows us that Jesus wants you. If Jesus wanted to save a dirty, rotten, no good tax collector, then who doesn't Jesus want to save? Never imagine that you can somehow out the love of God. Zacchaeus' example stands, I believe, for all time as proof that God's love and God's grace and God's mercy and God's forgiveness, it extends even to the worst sinner no matter what it is that you have done. That's not kid stuff, is it? Think about Zacchaeus as a child story. That's, that's not kiddie stuff. Because finally this morning, what Zacchaeus' story shows us is that Jesus is looking. Who Jesus is looking for is He is looking for people who are serious about repentance. You know, Jesus comes to Zacchaeus' house, and that was rather unexpected, but what's going to happen next? Maybe the people that were standing outside, maybe they were kind of waiting with bated breath. What's going to happen next? What's going to be the next thing that happens? Well, we know what happens next. Verse 8, Zacchaeus stood. He said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. You know, it was a great favor that Jesus did by just coming to Zacchaeus' house that day. And sometimes when we think about that, I've been in conversations before where people have said, Man, it'd be really awesome to have Jesus over at my house. I think that'd just be great. I'd love to have Jesus in my house. Love to have Him as a guest in my home and be there with my family and sit and talk with Him and all of that. Well, here's the kicker. If I invite Jesus to my home, He's not coming there in order to sample my wife's delicious uh, chicken lasagna. That's, that's not why He's coming. And if He comes, He's not coming to chill out with the boys and watch the Final Four games. That's not why Jesus is coming. Jesus isn't even there to do small talk and just shoot the breeze about the weather. What about the weather? No. When Jesus comes to your house... He comes to speak about salvation and about what it means to be right with God and what it means to deny yourself and to live for Him and put Him first. And while we are not treated to all of the conversation that takes place between Jesus and Zacchaeus, the things that obviously would have been said between verse 7 and between verse 8, what we do see, we do see in verse 8 that Zacchaeus stands up and he says, Lord... I'm making a change. I'm going to be different now. I'm making a complete renovation in my life. Lord, I am repenting. 
In fact, look again at verse 8. Look at the fruits of Zacchaeus' repentance. He's going to give half of his goods to the poor. He's going to defraud anyone of the things that he's defrauded them. Multiply that by four. You know, is there any more powerful evidence of repentance than when somebody stands up and says, I'm going to change the way I do my money. My pocketbook is going to now bow at the feet of Jesus the Christ. The truth is, by bringing Jesus home that day, Zacchaeus was a loser financially, but he was a winner spiritually, wasn't he? See what happens? See the series of events here? Do you see what happens when you go climbing in a tree and you think you're looking for Jesus? Come to find out, Jesus is actually the one who's looking for you. But He's not looking for you. So that you can come down and He can pat you on the back. And He can just make you feel all good about yourself and tell you, hey, you can just maintain the status quo. You can just keep on living exactly as you've been living. Jesus didn't come to do that. And Jesus did not come to kind of you know, pump up your self-esteem and make you feel all good about yourself and feel good about your life and you go home totally unchanged by that. No. Jesus is looking for you. Jesus goes home with you so that He can change you. He wants to make changes, big changes. He wants to remodel you from the inside out. He wants you to repent. And you know what? Let's just be honest here. Genuine repentance, the kind of repentance that Zacchaeus is modeling for us, repentance, it's hard. It's difficult. And you know what? Sometimes it hurts. And sometimes it is costly. But if you're going to be saved, then you'll have to stop doing some things and you'll have to start doing some other things. And that is what repentance is all about. And that is who Jesus is looking for. He's looking for people who are willing to make that 180 degree turn like Zacchaeus made and who are willing even to pay the price in order to make that happen. Jesus is looking. The Son of Man came to seek, to save the lost. And what Luke 19 shows us is that Jesus is very, very diligent in His search. He is looking for people who have sincere hearts and who are trying to do the right thing. He is looking for people who recognize their sinfulness. No matter how great their sin might be, people who are then looking for a Savior from their sins. He's looking for people, thirdly, who want and who are ready to change and live for Him. Jesus is looking for you. Back in 1893... There was an English writer named Francis Thompson who wrote a poem entitled The Hound of Heaven. That poem begins with these words. I fled from him for nights and days. I fled from him through the arches of years. I fled from him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him from those strong feet that followed Followed after. That's the hound of heaven. That's Jesus. And He is hunting. He is searching. He is looking for you. As long as you have breath in your body, as long as this world still stands, He will continue night and day, year after year, to pursue you. 
to follow after you. He's doing that so that He can save you. Don't flee from Him. Don't hide from Him. In fact, if you've been fleeing, if you've been hiding, if you've been running up to this point, stop it. Stop it. Instead, surrender to Him. Yield yourself to Him in absolute obedience. If you have never submitted yourself to Jesus Christ in the waters of baptism, then this can be that moment. This can be the moment when Jesus washes all of your sins away, when you are immersed in water and come into contact with His saving blood. Can we help somebody to do that this morning? Brother or sister, if you've not been living faithfully for the Lord, you need to know that the hound of heaven... He is seeking after you. He is pursuing you. He wants you to repent. He wants you to come home to your Father and start living the way that you know that you ought to be. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The question is, do you want to be found? If so, would you make your way down front? Do that right now while we stand and while we sing.